You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. Masterclass. A masterclass that will be happening up until 3 p.m. We are joined by Professor Mutabi Jagane, academic head of the Department of Anesthesiology at Vitz and Chris Honey Baragwanath Hospital. Thank you so much, Professor, for joining us for this masterclass on anesthesia. Welcome to 702 Afternoons. Thank you for the invite and uh, good afternoon to your listeners. Thank you to 702 for the invitation. So, Professor, share with us what exactly is anesthesia? If you had to explain it to obviously the person that has absolutely no idea what we are talking about. Um, So, uh, anesthesia is basically a state of unconsciousness, even though um, it has evolved over the years um, to include many other things uh, within anesthesia, but basically it it evolves around the state of unconsciousness. Um, Anesthesia started a long time ago, uh, basically with um, agents back then that we're not using at the moment, but it has evolved as everything else is now including technology. I can go through, you know, the, the history of how anesthesia evolved, if you would like me to. Yes, because obviously, um, in my mind, I recall a film with Charlize Theron. I can't remember the title, but one of the characters was a doctor and he would knock himself out with the same thing that he would use on patients and at the time it was almost like putting a liquid into a cloth my understanding is before he did procedures uh, um, he would use that but it, to me i just assumed it was chloroform or something along those lines so is are those some of the things that they were using back in the day so um how it started it started uh, maybe in the 3400 bc's and what was used then, or was discovered at the time, was opium. And over the years, in the Middle Ages, um, alcohol was used, ether was used, was discovered, and nitrous oxide in the 1700s. But um, anesthesia has evolved so much that in the 20th century, um, then intravenous agents were used. I, I'm sure um, all of you listeners will recall the story about Michael Jackson and yes. one of the anesthetic agents were used. So barbiturates, things like that particular drug, which is propofol, were discovered in the 20th century. And um, also other, you know, as, as it evolves, the drugs that are being used during anesthesia are being refined um, so short acting, you know, depth of anesthesia. So gas um, anesthetics were also in, in included, volatiles, so to, so to speak. And um, so the t- 20th century had a lot of that development where local anesthetics were now being used. So to be precise, with anesthesia, even though initially it was just to give a patient a state of unconsciousness, what has gotten into it is not just anesthesia, but analgesia as well. So anesthetists or anesthesiologists are basically, um, you know, they, they put you not only under anesthesia, but they're also pain management specialists. I'm, so I'm so glad you mentioned that because the question I was going to ask you was, was the initial intention that you shouldn't be conscious or was the initial intention, how can we have a procedure that is pain-free 
but then also thinking about pain-free um, um, or pain management was the consideration at the time that this whole thing was created that you being awake while somebody's cutting into you might be traumatic even if the pain has been managed? So in the beginning, it was for the most part being unconscious. Mm. But the, the realization that you may be unconscious but in pain. So then the pain, the analgesia part of it started evolving. So the current practice is that you have to be anesthetized and analgesed at the same time. Mm. And that, that, that can be one, you know, you can have a general anesthetic where analgesia is a big part of it. Or now we have what we call regional anesthesia, which is basically the blocks, as you spoke about, about the epidural. So you can have just maybe one limb that's put under anesthesia, which is that that you get a block on the one limb or you can get a block below your waist Mm. uh, if you're going to have a baby. Uh, That's part of what we call regional anesthesia. So we can anesthetize just one part of your body. And anesthetize, I mean, that part of the body will sort of like be unconscious and pain-free at the same time mm. while the rest of your while you are awake so that's that's the art that has got into gotten into anesthesia at the moment so if we think about it and maybe you can uh, share it um you know on on the simp- in the simplest terms for the layman what is it doing is it you know switching off the nervous system what is it doing that the 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 the, the body or that part that has been you know made to go to sleep that even cutting through does not wake the senses up yes so you precisely so um particularly the regional anesthetic techniques they switch off the nerves it it, it you can switch off the nerves at the level of the spinal cord or you can switch off the nerves at the level of what we call plexus um, or you can switch off a particular nerve system so um, you know it's targeted it's it's also depending on where the surgery is going to be and mm. the extent the, how extensive the surgery is so it can be your whole body is basically put under so that you don't hear you don't feel or you feel very little because you you sometimes when you get a general anesthetic you do wake up with a little bit of pain it can be that or it can be targeted to a specific area and that switching of the nerves at that particular area, which do recover after um, a, set, a certain t- a period of time. So maybe just help me understand. Um, I uh, had a procedure where my fibroids were removed, so I went under general anesthetic. Unfortunately, at some point I started leaking and the doctor needed to open me up in the ward with a wound specialist to see what was going on. Now... Obviously, my layman self was like, how are we opening me up in the ward, you know, um, without an anesthesiologist? And they explained to me that they're giving me pills that are just make, going to make me not remember the experience. Does that qualify as well as some type of anesthesia? Because all I remember was I was given pills and the doctors were talking to me and I was awake and talking. The next thing I was conscious and talking, but I do not recall the experience, and I did not experience the pain of them opening me up to see what was going on. 
Sure, I, I I would be very careful to speak to a specific scenario yes. because um, you know um, I, I wasn't privy to it. I wasn't yes. part of it, so I wouldn't want to speak to something that another practitioner did that perhaps uh, made sense to them. But um, what I can say is that part of so anesthesia we call we say it's a continuum. Mm. So it's, it's a state of consciousness that has many different levels. One of those levels is what we call sedation. So there is uh, also different levels of sedation. You can be sedated and a little bit more aware, or you can also be under deep sedation where mm. you're basically fully asleep because you've been given an anesthetic that sedates you but doesn't put you to sleep completely. Mm. So then we have total anesthesia, which is where you're con- completely unconscious. So it's a continuum. It's like a, a um, it, it's like a not a just one thing, but there's a spectrum of how deep you can go under anesthesia, depending on what is necessary. So there are yes. procedures where even sedation and deep sedation, mm. because the procedure is not necessarily. Um, that painful and they're not going to open like your inside your stomach or mm. something like that. So there are lots of other procedures that are done under sedation, but that's part of anesthesia. Okay. It's just the lower Yes. And I think the main thing I was trying to understand is that the common understanding of anesthesia is that it's some substance being, you know, given to you intravenously that makes you either not feel or not experience. And for me, I think the confusion, the doctor did use the word sedation. And I think as you're saying it, I recall that what what was confusing me is trying to understand if the sedation by oral medication still would fall under anesthesia because it was for the purposes of pain management and or me not having to experience the trauma of what was being done to me. But I think you've cleared that up. O double one double eight three oh seven oh two oh seven two seven oh two one seven oh two. We are talking a master class on anesthesia and we'll be taking all of your calls after this. Seven oh two Masterclass 20 minutes after 2 o'clock, our masterclass today is on anesthesia and we're speaking to Professor Mutsabi Chagani, Academic Head of the Department of Anesthesiology at Vitz and Chris Honey Baragwanath Hospital. So, Professor, I mean, we touched on what are the levels of anesthesia and uh, what are some of the things that would qualify under anesthesia as well as a look back at to um, as to the journey in the medical field that um, anesthesia is taking. Where would you say we are today if you had to describe it simply with anesthesia? And do you think there is possibly room to still improve on what we are doing today um, in that department? Sure. Wow, that's that's a very interesting question because um, it's something that I had hoped would talk about. So in the 21st century, we uh, anesthesia has embraced technology as well. And um, we're seeing a lot more of digital technology being involved in anesthesia. We're having machine learning in anesthesia. We're having robotic um, uh, robotics in surgery. And we're also having what includes a lot of technology in, um, you know, anest- the type of anesthesia where you could say the machine itself does the anesthesia. And um, there's a lot of research at the moment that's lo- looking at closed loop anesthesia, whereby the machine does 
the whole anesthetic. You set it up and it, it gives the anesthesia, depending on what levels of analgesia is needed, what levels of anesthesia it's needed, the machine itself, then titrates, all of those things. So anesthesia has not been left behind. We are embracing technology. And as I'm saying, using you know machine learning, deep learning, the machines are being taught how to predict and to give anesthesia mm. um, to human beings. All right, let's quickly take a question. Uh, we've got James in Rudderport. Hi, James, how are you? Uh, good afternoon, I'm fine, thank you. Good, good. What's your question for the professor? Yes, I just wanted to find out, um, so when when a person goes under an operation and they the person needs to be put under, you know, under anesthesia, does the person first get a muscle relaxer, and which is, called maybe an anesthesia and does the oxygen actually puts the person under sleep Mm, so as in when you say the oxygen are you asking that if the gas that they give you in the mask which is the ox if that is putting you to sleep and not the intravenous medication correct okay okay professor my question is Mm. my question is basically uh your muscles need to be relaxed uh, in order for you to have the oxygen to put you, uh, uh, you know, under anesthesia. Okay. Mm. Yes. All right. And I think, Professor, this is a good opportunity to maybe explain for many people that have gone under that or have watched movies where, yes, there's the injection part. And in movies, they don't even show us, you know, the the IV drip going up and the fluids going through there. They just show us a person given a mask being told to count backwards, you know, and then we think that whatever comes through the gas mask is what's putting us to sleep. Can you help clarify? Okay. So so I, I want to go back a little bit where you spoke about being given pills. Mm. Uh, so there are pills that give you amnesia, which is a, sort of a part of anesthesia. And one of those would be um, midazolam, for example. So perhaps that's what you were given. And there's also other... Sorry to interrupt, Prof. You... Can we just uh, also just clarify for those that aren't clear, when you say given amnesia, as in they don't recall anything that has happened in that time? Yes, absolutely. Yes, so so you would be given, sometimes you're given that type of drug and you can give those orally as well. Yes. So, and, and for the most part for patients that perhaps are going to undergo major procedures and patients that are anxious before the procedure, um, quite a lot of people get given this type of drug that gives you amnesia. It calms you down. Um, it makes you not to remember, you know, what happens after the pill has taken effect. So that's that's one of the things that's, that can be given. Mm. In theater, to start the anesthetic, the proper anesthetic, um, there are two options. So you can be given the intravenous stuff, as, as you pointed out, or you can be given the volatile induction. So the start of the anesthesia is an induction of anesthesia. So you can be induced either with intravenous drugs or with volatiles. We use volatiles a lot more in in pediatric patients because you don't want to put up a drip in a child and then give them an agent. So we let them breathe the gas and they slowly go under. Not so often in adults, but you know, it, it's, it's a feasible thing. Um, in the mask, 
when you're going to go under anesthesia, and I would like to address a little bit more the adult population, mm. most of time what you're given as the anesthetic starts is oxygen. It is a supplementation to the normal oxygen that we're breathing just to, you know, allow for your body to have enough oxygen while the anesthetist is going to put the tube in or whatever or whatever airway device mm. that they're going to use on you to help you breathe while you are asleep. So for the most part, most of the adult population will get oxygen before induction. They'll get a drip and then they will get an intravenous agent that puts you to sleep. The muscle relaxation is is an additional part of the anesthesia component. And muscle relaxation is not necessarily given to everybody. Mm. Muscle relaxation is given for a reason. So perhaps you're going to be operated on in your abdomen and, and the surgeon needs the muscles of the abdomen to be relaxed so that they can open the abdomen and be able to work better mm. or they're going to work in parts of the body where you really do need to be relaxed then you're given an addition of a muscle relaxant that that paralyzes your muscles and that is why then we put devices in your airway and that connect you know the machine that we use to your lungs and we're able to help you breathe with the machine all right and 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 i want us um in a moment uh to get to all of those details. Let's quickly go to Amanda in Park Town. Amanda, you've got a question. Uh, good day, uh, and Prof Mutabi, and thank you for the great show and the topic. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to ask, um, how long does it take to be a qualified anesthetist to be able to give uh, this general anesthetic and regional anesthetic? Because I understand you need to be a GP first, and then you need to study further. So I just want to understand, like, how long does it take and how much time do you need to be ready to to be able to be a uh, qualified anesthetist? Amanda, is that uh, what you're interested in or you're asking for somebody else? Something that I'm interested in. Oh, okay. Lovely. Professor, how long? Um, so anesthesiology in South Africa is only uh, done by doctors. So you have to have a medical degree to specialize as an anesthesiologist. And this is, this is um, in South Africa. I just want to highlight that there are countries where anesthesia is also done by nurses, mm. but not in this country. So in, in other countries in Africa, even in the U.S., they have a group of, of practitioners called nurse anesthetists. Mm. In South Africa, you have to do a medical degree and then you specialize after your medical degree for four years to be an anesthesiologist. Um, and yeah, so, so basically that, that's what, what um, it, it entails in South Africa. All right, when we come back, we're going to continue with this masterclass on anesthesia. And I really, really want us to get an opportunity to touch on uh, complications that can happen under anesthesia. And, and I'll give you the background as to why I was asking the question on improving the anesthesia, because um, some people with maybe pre-existing medical conditions can also face certain challenges. So we'll continue this masterclass. O double one double eight three zero seven zero two is where you can give us a call for all of your questions and the WhatsApp line 072 702 1702.
702. Masterclass. Our masterclass for today is on anesthesia, and we are speaking to Professor Mutabi Chagani, who is an acad- the academic head of the Department of Anesthesiology at Vits and Chris Honey Baragwanath Hospital. And uh, we are taking your calls on 011-830702, your SMSs, 31702, your tweets at M at Radio 702 using the hashtag 702 Afternoons, and the WhatsApp line 0 0727021702. Now, Professor, before we get into all of um, the questions that are coming through on the WhatsApp line, can we quickly talk about what the job of an anesthesiologist really is in the room, particularly in your very major procedures that can go on for, you know, more than 20, 24 hours? What is their job um, other than administering the anesthesia? Sure. Um, I could, I could, I don't know where to start. I could say we, we are there to make the surgeons happy, but I won't go into that. <laughs> <laughs> but also, yes, you are there to make the surgeons happy. But I mean, we really don't, you know, because also the anesthesiologist, for people that haven't been under general anesthesia, when you, before, prior to going to a procedure, you know, assuming it's not an emergency, the anesthesiologist will ask you a whole lot of questions. In the case of myself being an asthmatic, I have had challenges breathing. So, you know, they will do certain things and make certain decisions even prior to going under in theater. Okay. So what we do, so um, what, you, what an anesthetist does is that before they, they take you on as a patient, and I would say take you on as a patient because prior to that, you're not really their patient, but you the patient to either the physicians or the, the surgeons, is to do a risk assessment. So anesthetists do, a, we call it a pre-med generally, but basically it's a visit where they do a risk assessment and they want to find out, like in your case, whether you're an asthmatic, whether you have any other medical ailments that you're taking treatment for or that are controlled or uncontrolled so that they can tailor your anesthetic um, to fit the risk that you have. And also so that they can be able to manage the risk. Part of it is also maybe postponing the surgery so that your risk can be improved and you can be treated. So, for example, if you have acute asthma and your surgery is not urgent, um, there's a possibility of postponing the surgery so that you can be rehabilitated or prehabilitated and optimized so that when you do undergo the anesthetic, you don't have a high risk of complications. And complications um, can range from, you know, um, anything up to mortality, basically. Mm. So um, anesthetists basically are there then to do a whole assessment and risk assess, risk uh, mitigate to make sure that your procedure is as safe as possible. So that's the one part. Once they've done that, as I said, they could possibly give you um, a, an agent that will make you relax and have amnesia. They have to also manage the medication that you already own. They have to make a decision whether some of those medications you can take before you go to surgery or whether you can omit them for the day. And, and it's a whole variety of um, medications that, you know, are, are treated differently according to the type of procedure you're going to have. Once they've done that, then um, you meet in theater. And I think it's it's the, the most important part, particularly for 
patients out there is that um, a lot of patients see the anesthetist for like a few minutes in the beginning, mm. or they see you in the ward and they see you as you put them to sleep. And there's a, I, I think there's a false understanding that perhaps the anesthetist puts, puts you to sleep and they go away. And, mm. and then the next thing you get a bill. That's the biggest thing that makes us fight with patients. And that is not so because um, once you've been put under anesthesia, basically your normal functions have been taken away by that person who's given you the medication to put you under. That person is responsible for you after that. Mm. So they sit and look after you until you're out of the medication that they've given you. You may not be able to see them at the end because you might be a little bit uh, sleepy when the operation finishes. And when they deem it safe for you to be left with other people, such as the nurses in the recovery room or to be sent to the ward or to be sent to ICU, they move on to the next patient. So that's usually quite a big confusion in the population, in, in the community that, but I saw the anesthetist for like 10 minutes. Mm. The important thing is that they have, they have debilitated you, basically. They've taken away your functions. They are responsible for you. So they're usually sitting there monitoring all of your vital um, functions, your breathing, your heart rate, your blood pressure, and mitigating where there are problems. So they, they have to be there sitting with you until the end of the procedure, until you've regained all of your functions. Mm. And I think I'm glad that you are mentioning us because um, it also makes sense now why they, especially in, in, in private care, why they're so expensive. They really are specialists after, you know, getting the medical degree, whereas a person might in their mind think that an anesthesiologist actually studied fewer years than a medical doctor. So that is uh, very helpful to understand. Can we talk about possible complications um, you know, what are the pre-existing conditions that would make you extremely high risk or even um, from the medical shows where we see individuals that cannot have any anesthesia, what would be those scenarios? And is it possible for a person to be allergic to anesthesia? Sure, there's a, there's a whole array of um, conditions that predispose you to risk. I think the big, big, the big components would be heart disease, mm. um, lung disease, as you're saying, uh, with um, asthma, previous TB. But heart disease with ischemic heart disease is, is, you know, is what we deem to be the highest risk because most of the other organs you can treat as long as the heart is pumping. But mm. if the heart stops pumping, all of life is taken. So, um, and then the other, you know, as you said, some people react to uh, drugs generally, and you may get skin reactions, you may get your whole um, body system and hemodynamics, so to speak, affected by the drugs uh, leading to sometimes total collapse of your systems. So it's a, it's a whole array, and, and that is why it's very important for anesthetists, as you're saying, they are specialists in this field, for them to be able to do that risk assessment and, um, you know, so that then they can mitigate for the risk. Mm-hmm. Um- in terms of, um, let's just also, you know, take a look at the WhatsApp line 0727021702. You can also give us a call 0118830702. I see your messages are coming through. We're going to pose them to the professor when we come back.
uh, anesthesia, masterclass on anesthesia. We're speaking to Professor Motabi Chagani. Um, Professor, I'm quickly going to go to some of the questions that have come through. One says, Hi, Rebhile, please ask the professor if it's normal to experience numbness on your lower back and the back of thighs time to time after an attempted but failed epidural that happened in 2014. So, yes, it is possible. It is one of the complications, perhaps, um, because when you're putting in an epidural, you're basically putting it, as I said, into the spinal cord space. Mm. And um, so there are nerves that come from the spinal cord that are going down to your legs. And it may be that one of the nerves, um, you know, was was injured and you know takes time to to recover so those are some of the complications that we as anesthetists should actually be discussing with our patients before we embark on these to let the patients know what the complications are without you know making it too melodramatic and scaring the patients but these are some of the recognized complications that we are supposed to be discussing with the patients to say even though this happens like one in a million times or one in a hundred thousand patients, but it is something that, that may happen. And of course, um, you know, epidural is very, very uh, sensitive for those that haven't experienced it. Um, I literally had my surgeon put my head between my legs and hold me down so that uh, the anesthesiologist could get the very specific point and position. Um, I mean, you can imagine if a, if a mistake happens there, it can be uh, quite a challenge. Linda says, hi, doctor. I had an appendectomy seven weeks ago. I've had other major ops, but this time my oxygen levels went down. Are there any reasons why? Thank you. That is Linda. So as I said, I don't want to speak to specific situations because, um, you know, just out of respect of the colleagues that may mm. have been doing that and, and the fact that I'm not privy to what actually happened. But um, it is possible for for the oxygen to go down and that, you know, it's, it's, it's not an acceptable sort of like um, scenario. But the anesthetist is then supposed to be able to troubleshoot and see what it is that's making the patient's oxygen to go down. And that could be anything from oxygen from the pipelines of the hospital, um, oxygen that comes into the machine that we use, whether there's any disconnection to the patient from the tubes that we put into the patient that are supposed to be helping the patient breathe. So um, it is our job to make sure that patient's outcome are good and that you're there to mitigate whatever happens. So if something has disconnected or something has come off that's not supposed to come off, it's the job of, of the anesthetist to actually make sure that all of these things, when you pick it up, that something is not going right, that you should troubleshoot and be able to correct it quite quickly so that there's no you know, long-term complications. Let's um, uh, look at another message from Nadia in Pretoria who says, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is the topic today. I was discharged on Monday, had an epidural for a hip replacement. And when I stood up to go home, I had the worst headache and neck pulling stiff. I had to go back into hospital for a blood patch. Please ask the professor to explain the cautions. Okay, so... 
epidural, um, post-epidural headache is also one of the complications that perhaps happen more often than we would like to admit. Um, and um, yes, it is treated with a blood patch. So I want to assure the patient that they were given the, the correct um, remedy, basically, to the epidural headache. So um, because in the spinal cord, you've got fluid that's sort of like in a balance. Um, if you've, if you had intended to do an epidural and maybe you breached the layer that's where this fluid is in and that, that fluid leaks out, then the fluid is too little and it pulls sort of like on your, because the, the, the neural system is in a balance and it's within bones. Mm. So if you have a, an imbalance in that, particularly because maybe the fluid leaked a little bit, mm. it causes severe headaches, such bad headaches that, um, you know, a patient has to just be lying still so that they don't, you feel like your headache, your head, from what patients say, is going to just like blow up. But there is management for that, as I said, for any or most of the complications that we we encounter in anesthesia, and this is part of our training, is that you should be uh, quite conversant and knowledgeable on the mitigating um, procedures that you can do, and a blood pressure is one of them. Um, I've got a tweet from Madimpo who says, thank you for addressing this issue of anesthesiologists. I always complain after getting their bills to say, for what are you billing me for? Because you just asked me two questions and made me fall asleep. But now we know uh, really, really, um, in my view, anesthesiologists like have to keep you alive, uh, which is quite a massive responsibility. Miranda in Johannesburg. Hi. Hi. Um. But I experienced a laryngeal spasm, I think that's the right word, after um, uh, an anesthetic a few months ago um, for a very small procedure that only maybe took 20 minutes. But um, I later came out and, and experienced stiffness, and uh, when I spoke to my doctor, they spoke to um Spoke, uh, found out from the, the person who did my anesthetic and said I'd actually experienced that. I just want to know is that something common or is that something um, one should be concerned about and let, if you ever have to have another operation, let the anesthetic person know about it. Mm, thank you so much for that question, Miranda. Okay, so thank you so much for the question. So laryngospasm is. Um, is one of the common um, complications as well, particularly if the patient has had an upper respiratory tract infection um, because your your airway is quite sensitive at that point. And so it's it's prone to spasming when it gets instrumented with the, the instruments that we use and the tubes. So it's not something to worry about going forward and not something that you need to like put on your medical records, no. It's just, it does happen. Sometimes what, what also is quite a common thing that happens when you've had a tube put into your throat is that you have a sore throat afterwards. You could have a sore throat for 24 hours or 48 hours. Um, we do tell our patients sometimes maybe anesthetists don't express it quite well, but it's because you've had something, a, a foreign object put into mm. your airway. So irritates you and when once you've come out of anesthesia you may have a little bit of a sore throat but it goes away it's not one of the biggest complications that we worry about but it does happen it's just nice for patients to know when you've had it that 
it's not something you should really worry too much about that it will go away i think that's the message that we should be telling the patients actually professor we have a whatsapp on that very note that says can intubation cause paralysis of the vocal cords i had an op in october and my throat has gotten worse and worse i can't eat swallow and my voice has now disappeared can this be permanent I think in that in this particular case, um, the patient must have had real trauma to their uh, vocal cords. And my advice would be to seek um, help from an ENT surgeon mm. so that they can look at cords because this sounds a lot more serious than what's supposed to happen. It should, if you've had just a, an intubation that has just made your throat a little bit sore, it goes away within a few days. So if this has been so protected, I would really advise the patient to see an, an ENT surgeon so that they can look at the cords and see whether there's real damage to them. Um, or whether there's something else. Sometimes you find that you've had the sore throat, but there was something underlying that's now becoming more prominent Mm. and that needs a totally different approach. I'm so, so sorry that we've run out of time. I could not get to so many of the questions that came through. But thank you so much, Professor Motsabi Chagane, uh, academic head of the Department of Anesthesiology at Vitz and Chris Honey Baraguanath Hospital on this masterclass on anesthesia.